You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. A long life can pass by many milestones. My own is no exception. It has always been easy to hate and destroy. To build and to cherish is much more difficult. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. It's understandable that we sometimes think the world's problems are so big that we can do little to help. On our own, we cannot end wars or wipe out injustice. But the cumulative impact of thousands of small acts of goodness can be bigger than we imagine. It's worth remembering that it is often the small steps, not the giant leaps, that bring about the most lasting change. When people in 53 years from now look back on us, they will doubtless view many of our practices as old-fashioned. But it is my hope that when judged by future generations, our sincerity, our willingness to take a lead, and our determination to do the right thing will stand the test of time. We will succeed, and that success will belong to every one of us. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. connection to the U.S. goes back further than many can remember since her reign began before most of us were born. There were 14 presidents during the Queen Elizabeth's reign, and she met all but one, from Harry Truman all the way up to President Biden when he visited the U.K. just last year. Our Nancy Cordes is at the White House right now with more on a leader who was part of multiple generations of American history. Nancy, good morning. Good morning, Jerika. Yes, if you think about it, there are few people in history, if any, who knew as many U.S. presidents as she did. She hosted them. They hosted her. There were dances and horseback rides and a baseball game, all of it emblematic of that special relationship between her country and ours. Long before Camelot came to London, 
Or President Reagan rode horseback with the Queen. And Princess Elizabeth makes her first appearance in the States. Yes, then Princess Elizabeth met her first American president, Harry Truman, more than 70 years ago in Washington. Very great pleasure for me as the President of the United States uh, to welcome you to the capital of our country. She came back as queen later that decade and met Dwight Eisenhower, later sending him her recipe for scones. Her Majesty hosted a dinner for John F. Kennedy and his wife Jackie at Buckingham Palace. Then one for Richard Nixon, who once tried to set up his daughter Trisha with Prince Charles. That transatlantic alliance didn't take. The Queen took Gerald Ford's hand as a dance partner in 1976 to celebrate the bicentennial of American independence from the British throne, a milestone that three decades later tripped up another president. You helped our nation celebrate its bicentennial in in 1976. She gave me a look that only a mother could give a child. Perhaps no president got the relationship right more than Ronald Reagan, who stayed and played with the queen at Windsor Castle. The pair also shared laughs in California, where Her Majesty hosted the Reagans aboard her royal yacht. The queen seemed just as home taking in America's pastime at a baseball game in Baltimore with George H.W. Bush in 1991. Mr. Speaker. Then, the next day in D.C., uniting both parties after the Gulf War. We have both learned from history that we must not allow aggression to succeed. There have been some presidential missteps, like when Mr. Trump stepped in front of the Queen. There were times the special relationship got a little too close, like this distinctly British embrace with First Lady Michelle Obama. To Her Majesty the Queen, for the vitality of the special relationship. Or when Mr. Obama kept talking, a royal mistake, as the band began to play the British national anthem. To the Queen. But throughout it all, the respect for this legendary monarch was always evident. But talk we will, listen we have to, disagree from time to time we may, but united we must always remain. The first time President Biden met the Queen was 40 years ago in 1982 when he was still a U.S. senator. And the last time he saw her was last year at Windsor Castle when he said that she reminded him of his mom. Last night, he signed a condolence book at the U.K. embassy here in Washington and said that he is likely to attend the royal funeral in the days to come. Jerika. Nancy Cordes Force at the White House. Thank you so much. Welcome to our very special edition of Randall Wallace Presents Queen Elizabeth II, God Save the Queen, as we look back on her 70-year reign as the Queen of England and the Commonwealth, and where it started when she selflessly said she would give uh, her life to the service of her country, and that's what she did. And, uh, you know, I've told people uh, in my lifetime, there have been 10 presidents. Uh, there's been about six city managers in the city of Myrtle Beach where I served. Uh, there have been uh, 
who knows how many prime ministers, I think 15, there's been one queen. When she started, Harry Truman was president, Winston Churchill was the prime minister, and Joseph Stalin was still on the world stage. Today, the Soviet Union no longer exists. President is Joe Biden, and the prime minister has only been serving for three days. What a remarkable run. Uh, her reign and her role in the history of this of this t- time period is incalculable. And even if you're not a big fan of the monarchy, you can't help but be a big fan of Queen Elizabeth II. So with that, let's look back on the life and the reign of Queen Elizabeth II of England. At the height of the Blitz in October 1940... Britain was teetering on the brink of defeat. Prime Minister Winston Churchill asked the king to let his daughter make a crucial contribution to the war effort. He wanted the 14-year-old Princess Elizabeth to make her very first radio broadcast to millions of people around the world. It would be recorded from Windsor Castle. There were weeks and weeks of preparations with her governess. I mean, she practiced breathing. It wasn't just done like she read a script. It was very, very carefully rehearsed. And she was very nervous. She read it several times to her parents before she actually completed the broadcast. The speech was written to offer comfort to homesick young evacuees sent overseas. But there was another, more important motive. Britain was desperate for an ally, and Churchill believed that the young Elizabeth could charm America into declaring war on the Nazis. The speech was recorded in one of the rooms in Windsor Castle because I think they wanted it to be as sort of homely as possible. This was the first time the public had heard the young princess's voice. Elizabeth needed to summon all her weeks of practice to remain calm and composed. All of us children who are still at home think continually of our friends and relations who have gone overseas, who have traveled thousands of miles to find a wartime home and a kindly welcome in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and the United States of America. My sister is by my side, and we are both going to say goodnight to you. Come on, Margaret. Good night, children. Good night, and good luck to you all. The Windsor speech was a massive success. It was front-page news, and a skeptical American public was won over by the young princess. Windsor Castle itself became both a symbol of defiance and a beacon of hope against a superior enemy. This is the BBC Home Service. Hello, children everywhere. This is one of the most important days in the history of Children's Hour. Some time ago, we were honoured by the visit to the studio of the King and Queen with Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret during the broadcast of a Toytown programme. Today, Princess Elizabeth is herself to take part in the Children's Hour and speak to the children of the Empire at home and overseas. 
Listeners in the United States of America will also hear this broadcast. Her Royal Highness, Princess Elizabeth. In wishing you all good evening, I feel that I am speaking to friends and companions who have shared with my sister and myself many a happy children's hour. Thousands of you in this country have had to leave your homes and be separated from your fathers and mothers. My sister Margaret Rose and I feel so much for you, as we know from experience what it means to be away from those we love most of all. To you living in new surroundings, we send a message of true sympathy, and at the same time, we would like to thank the kind people who have welcomed you to their homes in the country. All of us children who are still at home think continually of our friends and relations who have gone overseas, who have traveled thousands of miles to find a wartime home and a kindly welcome in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and the United States of America. My sister and I feel we know quite a lot about these countries. Our father and mother have so often talked to us of their visits to different parts of the world. So it is not difficult for us to picture the sort of life you are all leading and to think of all the new sights you must be seeing and the adventures you must be having. But I am sure that you too are often thinking of the old country. I know you won't forget us. It is just because we are not forgetting you that I want, on behalf of all the children at home, to send you our love and best wishes to you and to your kind hosts as well. Before I finish, I can truthfully say to you all that we children at home are full of cheerfulness and courage. We are trying to do all we can to help our gallant sailors, soldiers and airmen. And we are trying too to bear our own share of the danger and sadness of war. We know, every one of us, that in the end all will be well. For God will care for us and give us victory and peace. And when peace comes, remember, it will be for us, the children of today, to make the world of tomorrow a better and happier place. My sister is by my side, and we are both going to say good night to you. Come on, Margaret. Good night, children. Good night. And good luck to you all. And if I may be allowed, I would like to say what is in the minds of all the children listening. Thank you, Princess Elizabeth, very much for broadcasting in the children's hour. 21st birthday, I welcome the opportunity to speak to all the peoples of the British Commonwealth and Empire, wherever they live, whatever race they come from, and whatever language they speak. 
Let me begin by saying thank you to all the thousands of kind people who have sent me messages of goodwill. This is a happy day for me, but it is also one that brings serious thoughts, thoughts of life looming ahead with all its challenges and with all its opportunity. At such a time, it is a great help to know that there are multitudes of friends all around the world who are thinking of me and who wish me well. I am grateful and I am deeply moved. As I speak to you today from Cape Town, I am 6,000 miles from the country where I was born. But I am certainly not 6,000 miles from home. Everywhere I have traveled, in these lovely lands of South Africa and Rhodesia, my parents, my sister and I, have been taken to the heart of their people and made to feel that we are just as much at home here as if we had lived among them all our lives. That is the great privilege belonging to our place in the worldwide Commonwealth, that there are homes ready to welcome us in every continent of the earth. Before I am much older, I hope I shall come to know many of them. Although there is none of my father's subjects, from the oldest to the youngest, whom I do not wish to greet, I am thinking especially today of all the young men and women who were born about the same time as myself and have grown up like me in terrible and glorious years of the Second World War. Will you, the youth of the British family of nations, let me speak on my birthday as your representative. Now that we are coming to manhood and womanhood, it is surely a great joy to us all to think that we shall be able to take some of the burden off the shoulders of our elders who have fought and worked and suffered to protect our childhood. We must not be daunted by the anxieties and hardships that the war has left behind for every nation of our Commonwealth. We know that these things are the price we cheerfully undertook to pay for the high honor of standing alone seven years ago in defense of the liberty of the world. Let us say with Rupert Brooke, now God be thanked who has matched us with his hour. I am sure that you will see our difficulties in the light that I see them, as the great opportunity for you and me. Most of you have read in the history books the proud saying of William Pitt that England had saved herself by her exertions and would save Europe by her example. But in our time, we may say that the British Empire has saved the world first and has now to save itself after the battle is won. I think that is an even finer thing than was done in the days of Pitt. And it is for us who have grown up in these years of danger and glory to see that it is accomplished in the long years of peace that we all hope to stretch ahead. If we all go forward together with an unwavering faith, a high courage and a quiet heart, we shall be able to make of this ancient commonwealth which we all love so dearly, 
an even grander thing, more free, more prosperous, more happy, and a more powerful influence for good in the world than it has been in the greatest days of our forefathers. To accomplish that, we must give nothing less than the whole of ourselves. There is a motto which has been borne by many of my ancestors, a noble motto, I serve. Those words were an inspiration to many bygone heirs to the throne when they made their nightly dedication as they came to manhood. I cannot quite do as they did. But through the inventions of science, I can do what was not possible for any of them. I can make my solemn act of dedication with a whole empire listening. I should like to make that dedication now. It is very simple. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow, and God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. She was born Princess Elizabeth Alexandra Mary on April 21, 1926, far down the line of royal succession and largely out of the spotlight. That changed radically in 1936. Her grandfather, King George V, died, and within months, her uncle, Edward VIII, abdicated. This abrupt turn of events meant that Elizabeth's father became King George VI, and the princess was elevated to heir apparent. The princess wished them all the best of luck and success in future operations. As she grew into a young woman, she began taking on public service roles during World War II. And in 1947, she married Lieutenant Philip Mountbatten, a one-time prince of Greece and Denmark. Their ceremony was held at Westminster Abbey with some 2,000 in attendance. Five years later, Elizabeth's life changed suddenly again when King George died. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family. Her Majesty, looking radiant in her wonderful gown, leaves the palace. And so, at the age of 25, she ascended to the British throne. The coronation of Queen Elizabeth took place amid great pomp and circumstance, an event broadcast to the world on television for the very first time. We have this incredible continuity in this country in the form of the coronation. Other countries still have a monarchy, but very, very few have a medieval, in fact, none has a medieval coronation in the way that we do, and that we have a collection of uh, regalia that is used for that um, is, 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 is astonishing. The concept of the crown dates back at least 2,000 years. Originally a simple band, a halo of light, it represents the sovereign as head of the nation. Then there are the other sacred items in the collection that throughout the ceremony symbolize different aspects of the monarch's powers. The orb is an expression of religious and moral authority. 
The scepter embodies power. The ampulla and spoon represent the most holy part of the ceremony, when the monarch is anointed with the coronation oil. And the sovereign's ring, known by some as the wedding ring of England, symbolizes the lifetime commitment of the monarch. It's an amazing thing to see these objects, which in a way are very familiar to people from afar, but to see them up close like this, actually that proximity is extraordinary because you can really appreciate what astonishing objects they are. For many, the role of the crown jewels has been largely forgotten after 65 years without a coronation. They're not just objects of tremendous beauty and, and, and skill and craftsmanship and so on. They are an expression of the way in which authority has worked in this country, the, the relationship between the sovereign and the subject. So there is a kind of an expression of all of our history in that, in that relationship in those objects. Will you solemnly promise and swear to govern the peoples of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. I solemnly promise so to do. In those early years, the Queen and her husband, now the Duke of Edinburgh, started a growing family. Firstborn was Charles, the Prince of Wales, and heir to the throne. Then Anne, the Princess Royal, followed later by Prince Andrew, Duke of York, and Prince Edward, Earl of Wessex. Along with motherhood, the Queen also aimed to be a modern monarch and kept a busy public schedule for decades. I would like the whole American people, north, south, east, and west, to know how happy we are to be here. She met with world leaders at home and abroad and traveled extensively. One such visit brought her to the U.S. in 2007, while then-President George W. Bush was in the White House. It is the moment to take stock of our present friendship, rightly taking pleasure from its strengths, while never taking these for granted. And it is the time to look forward, jointly renewing our commitment to a more prosperous, safer, and freer world. The Queen also carried out an endless variety of ceremonial duties and was a patron of more than 600 organizations and charities, from child welfare to environmental conservation. Through it all, she tried to keep her family's personal life largely out of the public eye, but the effort was increasingly in vain. In 1983, an intruder broke into Buckingham Palace and confronted the Queen in her bedroom. And in 1992 came a series of tabloid scandals. Tensions in the marriage between her son, Prince Charles, and Princess Diana broke open with reports that both were having affairs. The Queen's second son, Prince Andrew, announced his separation from Duchess Sarah Ferguson. And Princess Anne divorced her husband, Captain Mark Phillips. Finally, in November that year, a fire destroyed historic sections of the royal residence, Windsor Castle. That same month, the Queen reflected on what she called the horrible year. It was in the splendid setting of the Great Hall at the City of London Guildhall that the Queen referred to 1992 as Annus Horribilis for her and her family. At a lunch specially organized by the Corporation of London to celebrate her 40 years on the throne, she spoke in unusually personal terms to hint at the misfortunes that have befallen the monarchy. 1992 is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. 
in the words of one of my more sympathetic correspondents, it has turned out to be an annus horribilis. She went on to make her first public statement on the fire at Windsor Castle. This generosity and wholehearted kindness of the corporation of the city to Prince Philip and me would be welcome at any time. But at this particular moment, in the aftermath of Friday's tragic fire at Windsor, it is especially so. Later, in an obvious reference to tabloid press coverage of the royal family, she implied that no one was above criticism, but effectively appealed for less savage treatment. There can be no doubt, of course, that criticism is good for people and institutions that are part of public life. No institution, city, monarchy, whatever, should expect to be free from the scrutiny of those who give it their loyalty and support, not to mention those who don't. But we are all part of the same fabric of our national society, and that scrutiny by one part of another can be just as effective if it is made with a touch of gentleness, good humour and understanding. But at least one tabloid editor was unrepentant tonight, as tomorrow's front page of his paper will show. If she thinks it's been a horrible year for her, what does she think it's been for her subjects? I mean, there are millions out of work. There are companies, not just Tupney Hakeney companies, but well-established companies that are going to the wall at the rate of one every six minutes during working hours. As the controversies rage on, the Queen's unprecedented personal comments will fuel even further debate. Preston Withs, Thames News. Reports of the Queen's contentious relationship with Princess Diana continued. Charles and Diana divorced in 1996 after having two sons, Prince William and Prince Harry. One year later, Diana was killed in a car crash in Paris, leaving a nation in shock. Amid an outpouring of public grief, Elizabeth drew criticism for waiting a week before issuing a statement on the tragedy. Tonight we look at the subdued atmosphere throughout the region as we prepare for the biggest funeral Britain has ever seen. At six o'clock, the Queen will speak to the nation. We'll have reaction from two of the country's leading churchmen. That's how the North West will mourn Diana, starting at ten past six. From the studios of ITN, the early evening news with John Suchet. Good evening. The Queen is to pay tribute to the Princess of Wales when she broadcasts live to the nation within this program at 6 o'clock tonight. We're staying on air uninterrupted, especially for the broadcast. The royal family returned from Balmoral today, and they produced an unprecedented series of walkabouts. The Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, and Prince Charles and his two sons, all mingled with mourners and chatted to them. This is BBC One. Now we go live to Buckingham Palace for a tribute from Her Majesty the Queen. Since last Sunday's dreadful news, we have seen throughout Britain and around the world an overwhelming expression of sadness at Diana's death. We have all been trying in our different ways to cope. It is not easy to express a sense of loss, since the initial shock is often succeeded by a mixture of other feelings, disbelief, incomprehension, anger, and concern for those who remain. 
We have all felt those emotions in these last few days. So what I say to you now, as your queen and as a grandmother, I say from my heart. First, I want to pay tribute to Diana myself. She was an exceptional and gifted human being. In good times and bad, she never lost her capacity to smile and laugh, nor to inspire others with her warmth and kindness. I admired and respected her for her energy and commitment to others, and especially for her devotion to her two boys. This week at Balmoral, we have all been trying to help William and Harry come to terms with the devastating loss that they and the rest of us have suffered. No one who knew Diana will ever forget her. Millions of others who never met her, but felt they knew her, will remember her. I, for one, believe there are lessons to be drawn from her life and from the extraordinary and moving reaction to her death. I share in your determination to cherish her memory. This is also an opportunity for me, on behalf of my family, and especially Prince Charles and William and Harry, to thank all of you who have brought flowers, sent messages, and paid your respects in so many ways to a remarkable person. These acts of kindness have been a huge source of help and comfort. Our thoughts are also with Diana's family and the families of those who died with her. I know that they too have drawn strength from what has happened since last weekend as they seek to heal their sorrow and then to face the future without a loved one. I hope that tomorrow we can all, wherever we are, join in expressing our grief at Diana's loss and gratitude for her all-too-short life. It is a chance to show to the whole world the British nation united in grief and respect. May those who died rest in peace, and may we, each and every one of us, thank God for someone who made many, many people happy. This is BBC One. Now the six o'clock news with Anna Ford and Diana Medill. The Queen has just paid tribute to Diana, Princess of Wales. In a live broadcast, she said Since the world had been overwhelmed by a feeling of sadness. She described the princess the as an exceptional and gifted human being. Earlier, she met some of the crowds outside Buckingham Palace. The three princes talked to the crowds at St. James's and at Kensington Palace. Harris has released a security video taken the night the princess died, which it says casts doubt on the claims that her driver was drunk. And in a change of plan, the body of the princess is to be buried in the grounds of her ancestral home, Althorp House, not in the family vault. She also objected to Charles's relationship with Camilla Parker Bowles, but when they married in 2005, she held a reception for them at Windsor Castle. 
Ultimately, the queen's popularity recovered, both at home and around the world. She became known as a devoted grandmother and later great-grandmother. And perhaps even better known for her colorful suits and hats, and for her love of dogs, especially the corgis who seemed never far away. Britain celebrated the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in 2012, marking the 60th anniversary of her rule with ceremonies, concerts, and a maritime parade featuring more than a thousand vessels riding down the Thames River. Three years later, in September 2015, she officially became Britain's longest reigning monarch, surpassing her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, who ruled for 63 years. And the weddings of her grandsons, William in 2011 and Harry in 2018, once again brought an outpouring of affection for the royal family. Through it all, Elizabeth urged her people to aspire to the good and to practice kindness, as in her pre-recorded Christmas message in 2016. There was a time when British Olympic medal winners became household names, because there were so few of them. But the 67 medals at this year's Games in Rio and 147 at the Paralympics meant that the GB medalist reception at Buckingham Palace was a crowded and happy event. Throughout the Commonwealth, there were equally joyful celebrations. Grenada, the Bahamas, Jamaica and New Zealand won more medals per head of population than any other countries. Many of this year's winners spoke of being inspired by athletes of previous generations. Inspiration fed their aspiration, and having discovered abilities they scarcely knew they had, these athletes are now inspiring others. A few months ago, I saw inspiration of a different kind when I opened the new Cambridge base of the East Anglian Air Ambulance, where Prince William works as a helicopter pilot. It was not hard to be moved by the dedication of the highly skilled doctors, paramedics and crew who are called out on average five times a day. But to be inspirational, you don't have to save lives or win medals. I often draw strength from meeting ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Volunteers, carers, community organisers and good neighbours unsung heroes whose quiet dedication makes them special. They are an inspiration to those who know them, and their lives frequently embody a truth expressed by Mother Teresa from this year, St. Teresa of Calcutta. She once said, Not all of us can do great things, but we can do small things with great love. This has been the experience of two remarkable organisations, the Duke of Edinburgh's Award and the Prince's Trust, which are 60 and 40 years old this year. These started as small initiatives, but have grown beyond any expectations and continue to transform young people's lives. To mark my 90th birthday... Volunteers and supporters of the 600 charities of which I have been patron came to a lunch in the Mall. Many of these organisations are modest in size, but inspire me with the work they do. 
from giving friendship and support to our veterans, the elderly or the bereaved, to championing music and dance, providing animal welfare, or protecting our fields and forests. Their selfless devotion and generosity of spirit is an example to us all. When people face a challenge, they sometimes talk about taking a deep breath to find courage or strength. In fact, the word inspire literally means to breathe in. But even with the inspiration of others, it's understandable that we sometimes think the world's problems are so big that we can do little to help. On our own, we cannot end wars or wipe out injustice. But the cumulative impact of thousands of small acts of goodness can be bigger than we imagine. At Christmas, our attention is drawn to the birth of a baby some 2,000 years ago. It was the humblest of beginnings, and his parents, Joseph and Mary, did not think they were important. Jesus Christ lived obscurely for most of his life and never travelled far. He was maligned and rejected by many, though he had done no wrong. And yet billions of people now follow his teaching and find in him the guiding light for their lives. I am one of them because Christ's example helps me see the value of doing small things with great love, whoever does them and whatever they themselves believe. The message of Christmas reminds us that inspiration is a gift to be given as well as received, and that love begins small but always grows. I wish you all a very happy Christmas. Queen herself tried to stay active, even at an advanced age. But in late 2016, Buckingham Palace announced she was cutting back on her appearances and her work for a number of charities. She also faced new personal turmoil when Prince Harry and his wife Meghan, who is half black, renounced their royal duties and said Meghan had been subjected to racism within the royal family. The couple ultimately moved to California. And in April of 2021, Prince Philip, the Queen's husband of nearly 75 years, died just short of his 100th birthday. He is someone who doesn't take easily to compliments. But he has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years. And I and his whole family, and this and many other countries, owe him a debt greater than he would ever claim or we shall ever know. Although it's a time of great happiness and good cheer for many, Christmas can be hard for those who have lost loved ones. This year especially, I understand why. But for me, in the months since the death of my beloved Philip, I have drawn great comfort from the warmth and affection of the many tributes to his life and work, from around the country, the Commonwealth, and the world. His sense of service, intellectual curiosity, 
and capacity to squeeze fun out of any situation were all irrepressible. That mischievous, inquiring twinkle was as bright at the end as when I first set eyes on him. But life, of course, consists of final partings as well as first meetings. And as much as I and my family miss him, I know he would want us to enjoy Christmas. We felt his presence as we, like millions around the world, readied ourselves for Christmas. While COVID again means we can't celebrate quite as we may have wished, we can still enjoy the many happy traditions. Be it the singing of carols, as long as the tune is well known, decorating the tree, giving and receiving presents, or watching a favourite film where we already know the ending. It's no surprise that families so often treasure their Christmas routines. We see our own children and their families embrace the roles, traditions and values that mean so much to us, as these are passed from one generation to the next, sometimes being updated for changing times. I see it in my own family, and it is a source of great happiness. Prince Philip was always mindful of this sense of passing the baton. That's why he created the Duke of Edinburgh's Award, which offers young people throughout the Commonwealth and beyond the chance of exploration and adventure. It remains an astonishing success, grounded in his faith in the future. He was also an early champion of taking seriously our stewardship of the environment. And I am proud beyond words that his pioneering work has been taken on and magnified by our eldest son, Charles, and his eldest son, William, admirably supported by Camilla and Catherine, most recently at the COP Climate Change Summit in Glasgow. Next summer, we look forward to the Commonwealth Games. The Baton is currently travelling the length and breadth of the Commonwealth, heading towards Birmingham, a beacon of hope on its journey. It will be a chance to celebrate the achievements of athletes and the coming together of like-minded nations. And February, just six weeks from now, will see the start of my Platinum Jubilee year, which I hope will be an opportunity for people everywhere to enjoy a sense of togetherness, a chance to give thanks for the enormous changes of the last 70 years, social, scientific and cultural, and also to look ahead with confidence. I'm sure someone somewhere today will remark that Christmas is a time for children. It's an engaging truth, but only half the story. Perhaps it's truer to say that Christmas can speak to the child within us all. Adults, when weighed down with worries, sometimes fail to see the joy in simple things, where children do not. And for me and my family, even with one familiar laugh missing this year, there will be joy in Christmas, as we have the chance to reminisce, and see anew the wonder of the festive season through the eyes of our young children, 
of whom we were delighted to welcome four more this year. They teach us all a lesson, just as the Christmas story does, that in the birth of a child there is a new dawn with endless potential. It is this simplicity of the Christmas story that makes it so universally appealing. Simple happenings that form the starting point of the life of Jesus, a man whose teachings have been handed down from generation to generation and have been the bedrock of my faith. His birth marked a new beginning. As the carol says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I wish you all a very happy Christmas. Elizabeth herself slowed down markedly during 2022, the platinum jubilee of her 70 years on the throne. She missed some of the anniversary events and was said to have difficulty getting around. But in one of her final acts, the Queen did meet with Liz Truss to formally request that Truss become the 15th Prime Minister of her long reign. My Lords and Members of the House of Commons, my government's priority is to deliver a national recovery from the pandemic that makes the United Kingdom stronger, healthier and more prosperous than before. To achieve this, my government will level up opportunities across all parts of the United Kingdom, supporting jobs, businesses and economic growth, and addressing the impact of the pandemic on public services. My government will protect the health of the nation, continuing the vaccination programme and providing additional funding to support the NHS. My ministers will bring forward legislation to empower the NHS to innovate and embrace technology. Patients will receive more tailored and preventative care closer to home. Measures will be brought forward to support the health and well-being of the nation, including to tackle obesity and improve mental health. Proposals on social care reform will be brought forward. My government will build on the success of the vaccination programme to lead the world in life sciences, pioneering new treatments against diseases like cancer and securing jobs and investment across the country. My ministers will oversee the fastest ever increase in public funding for research and development and pass legislation to establish an advanced research agency. The BBC is interrupting its normal programmes to bring you an important announcement. This is BBC News from London. Buckingham Palace has announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. In a statement, the palace said the Queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. The King and the Queen Consort will remain at Balmoral this evening and will return to London tomorrow. BBC Television is broadcasting this special programme reporting the death of Her Majesty the Queen.
I speak to you today with feelings of profound sorrow. Throughout her life, Her Majesty the Queen, my beloved mother, was an inspiration, an example to me and to all my family. And we owe her the most heartfelt debt any family could owe to their mother for her love, affection, guidance, understanding and example. Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived, a promise with destiny kept, and she is mourned most deeply in her passing. That promise of lifelong service I renew to you all today. Alongside the personal grief that all my family are feeling, we also share with so many of you in the United Kingdom, in all the countries where the Queen was head of state, in the Commonwealth and across the world, a deep sense of gratitude for the more than 70 years in which my mother as Queen served the people of so many nations. In 1947, on her 21st birthday, she pledged in a broadcast from Cape Town to the Commonwealth to devote her life, whether it be short or long, to the service of her peoples. That was more than a promise. It was a profound personal commitment which defined her whole life. She made sacrifices for duty. Her dedication and devotion as sovereign never wavered through times of change and progress, through times of joy and celebration, and through times of sadness and loss. In her life of service, we saw that abiding love of tradition, together with that fearless embrace of progress, which makes us great as nations. The affection, admiration and respect she inspired became the hallmark of her reign. And as every member of my family can testify, she combined these qualities with warmth, humor, and an unerring ability always to see the best in people. I pay tribute to my mother's memory and I honor her life of service. I know that her death brings great sadness to so many of you, and I share that sense of loss beyond measure with you all. When the Queen came to the throne, Britain and the world were still coping with the privations and aftermath of the Second World War and still living by the conventions of earlier times. In the course of the last 70 years, we have seen our society become one of many cultures and many faiths. The institutions of the state have changed in turn. But through all changes and challenges, our nation and the wider family of realms, of whose talents, traditions, and achievements I am so inexpressibly proud, 
have prospered and flourished. Our values have remained and must remain constant. The role and the duties of monarchy also remain, as does the sovereign's particular relationship and responsibility towards the Church of England, the church in which my own faith is so deeply rooted. In that faith and the values it inspires, I have been brought up to cherish a sense of duty to others and to hold in the greatest respect the precious traditions, freedoms and responsibilities of our unique history and our system of parliamentary government. As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. And wherever you may live in the United Kingdom or in the realms and territories across the world, and whatever may be your background or beliefs, I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love, as I have throughout my life. My life will, of course, change as I take up my new responsibilities. It will no longer be possible for me to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply. But I know this important work will go on in the trusted hands of others. This is also a time of change for my family. I count on the loving help of my darling wife, Camilla. In recognition of her own loyal public service since our marriage 17 years ago, she becomes my queen consort. I know she will bring to the demands of her new role the steadfast devotion to duty on which I have come to rely so much. As my heir, William now assumes the Scottish titles which have meant so much to me. He succeeds me as Duke of Cornwall and takes on the responsibilities for the Duchy of Cornwall, which I have undertaken for more than five decades. Today, I am proud to create him Prince of Wales, Tewusog Cymru, the country whose title I have been so greatly privileged to bear during so much of my life and duty. With Catherine beside him, our new Prince and Princess of Wales will, I know, continue to inspire and lead our national conversations, helping to bring the marginal to the centre ground where vital help can be given. I want also to express my love for Harry and Meghan as they continue to build their lives overseas. In a little over a week's time, we will come together as a nation, as a commonwealth, and indeed a global community, to lay my beloved mother to rest. In our sorrow, 
let us remember and draw strength from the light of her example. On behalf of all my family, I can only offer the most sincere and heartfelt thanks for your condolences and support. They mean more to me than I can ever possibly express. And to my darling Mama, as you begin your last great journey to join my dear late Papa, I want simply to say this. Thank you. Thank you for your love and devotion to our family and to the family of nations you have served so diligently all these years. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. like a marmalade sandwich. I always keep one for emergencies. So do I. I keep mine in here. Oh. For later. The party is about to start, Your Majesty. Jubilee, man. And thank you for everything. That's very kind. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now. <laughs>